Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. All right, so this is the first of two services today. We're doing two services now. Uh, That's pretty good. It doesn't feel awkwardly, you know, kind of empty, right? Um, we took some chairs out. Uh, so this, this feels good. Well, we'll see how the 11 goes. There may be like, you know, 12 people here, and uh, they all have the last name Clary. We'll see. But, <laughs> but this is fun. Uh, it's, it's good. It's a great opportunity for us to um, be inviting people to church, welcoming people in, people that are Christians that don't have a church home, people that don't know the Lord. Great opportunity to do that. Um, so uh, I've already got my one, so I want to, I got my one that I'm praying for. Alex, can we, can we put these in the boxes, the silver boxes back there? Yeah, if, if you didn't want to go back here and like pin it to the board, some of you may have never been back there, drop it in the box out front, but make sure you put a name there and we'll take it, put it on the board and we'll be praying over that. So today we are beginning a new series in First Peter, we were in the book of Luke for a couple of years, I think, uh, but now we're starting a new series in the book of First Peter, and Peter is one of Jesus's best friends. I say he is, he was, one, he's not alive anymore, so Peter was one of Jesus's best friends. Um, but as we get started here, let me just acknowledge something. This is the time of year when we see a lot of new folks that show up to visit church, um, they're checking out different churches and so on. So I just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here to visit with us, and you're here whenever we're starting a new series. So let me tell you a little bit about just how we do things. Um, all of our sermons here are based on the Bible. So we go through just a little chunk each week, a few verses at a time. And this is because everything that we know about Jesus comes from the Bible, and the New Testament, which is, you know, the, the New Testament, those are all stories of Jesus and letters about Jesus. The New Testament um, is the written record of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And so the book of First Peter was written by Peter, and he was one of Jesus's very close friends. And so he wrote this book to a handful of churches about 30 years after Jesus's resurrection. So this is very close to the events that he's talking about. And so we're going to spend the next few months learning this book, what he wrote, why he wrote it, what God was saying and is saying through it to us today. And we do this because we place a very high premium on deriving our beliefs about God, Jesus, humanity, sin, salvation, believing what we believe based on what God has written to us in his word. So we get these, we, our beliefs come from the Bible. So I want you to consider this uh, today an invitation to make a habit out of being here. Um, some of you may be checking out churches or whatever, but I just want to tell you now directly, we, I would love for you to stick around for a while. And since you're here on the week that we're beginning a new series, then I'll let you know what you can expect as we do this. We are um, going to study this book, and over the next few months, you're going to learn more about the Bible, what, what the Bible says. If you're not familiar with the Bible, here's an opportunity to learn more about it. And in so doing, you'll learn more about God, and you'll learn more about salvation, what it means for a person to be saved. You'll learn more about how to live a life that is pleasing to God. 
That's what, that's what we do. And my commitment to you as pastor here and anybody else who preaches here is to always be honest with you and to always speak what, as best I can, speak the truth as I know it from the Scriptures. That doesn't mean that I'm always perfect or always get everything right, but as best I can, I wanna, my commitment is to always speak the truth to you and to speak it as plainly as I can because I want you to be able to understand what we're saying. And ultimately, I want you to know God. I want you to understand God, understand the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover five verses today, and over the next few months, we'll just keep working our way through a few verses at a time. There are two doctrines that are really important that are part of the text today, Um, and that's the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of election. These are two doctrines that are here in this text, and they go together because the first one, Trinity, tells us who God is, and the second one, election, tells us about what God did, and then how do we respond to that? All right, that's where we're going today. Let's dig in. Let me read to us. We'll start with the first two verses. First Peter chapter 1, at the very beginning, verses 1 and 2 says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter's the author. Apostle is his title of Jesus Christ. To those, here's who he's writing to. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, he was an ordinary fisherman, and Jesus chose him to be an apostle But he was a regular guy, blue-collar, ordinary, working man. And apostles, these were the the men who who Jesus chose specifically to be with him. So we have the 12 disciples, but they're also called apostles because they were sent. An apostle means sent. So we have apostles, and uh, they were specifically called by Jesus. And an apostle also is authorized to bear witness to the resurrection because they saw Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they were sent out to tell people about Jesus. Well, during Jesus' ministry, Peter uh, was sort of elevated amongst the 12 disciples as the leader, the spokesman of the 12 And later, he was martyred for his faith. So he was so committed to what he believed that he uh, went to his death testifying to the truth of it. Now, we have this this little strange phrase here, elect exiles. The word elect, that means chosen. So whenever we have a presidential election, everybody chooses their preference. And then whoever has the most votes, that person is elected. So it's a, it means chosen. And then exiles, that means stranger or pilgrim. It means, in a way, somebody that doesn't quite belong where they are. They're, they're exiled. They, they're here, but they, they don't really belong here. That's, that's the idea behind the word exile. And so the basic idea, and P- Peter is saying, this is who I'm talking to. And now he's got an immediate audience of these uh, five five groups of people, but by extension, because it's in the Bible, this this applies to all of us. And he's saying to them and to us by extension, God chose every Christian for himself, for God. 
God chose every Christian for himself, and because of that election, because of that choosing, that makes them strangers in this world. Elect, chosen, exiles, strangers. And since God chose us, that means that we belong to God, and we belong to God's kingdom, and we, we have a new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so the experience that we have in this life is, a, is a people who are sojourning here. We're pilgrims here. We're, we're exiled here. This is not our ultimate home. Our ultimate destiny is not this life. But we, we have been chosen to be citizens of another kingdom. Now, in verse 2... I want you to see something, and so I've, uh, I've, I've taken the same verse and just um, indented it a little bit differently to help you to see something I want to point out. And what I want you to see here in verse 2 is that the whole Trinity participated in our election, playing a particular role to secure salvation for us. So I want you to see the Trinity here. We see the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here's God the Father. So the election was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so the word uh, foreknowledge, by the way, this foreknowledge, it's not know as in um, I know how to tie my shoe. It's not an awareness of. Um, it is a, the knowledge in the sense of an intimate fellowship. And so uh, in you know, older English translations of the Bible, uh, we'll talk about Adam and Eve, their sexual union as knowing. Adam knew his wife Eve. It is, it is that sort of intimacy and closeness. God knew you, but not knew you as in, um, I know, you know, Joe Biden. I'm aware of him, but I don't know him personally. It is, uh, God knew us the way you might know your best friend. It's, it's, a, it's this intimate knowledge. And so God, there was this, this foreknowledge, this foreloving, this, this awareness and this intimate fellowship with, this desire, this affection for those who were um, that God had chosen. So God knew from eternity past you, and he loved you from eternity past. He set his covenant love on you. And then we have the sanctification of the Spirit. So there's the Holy Spirit. Sanctification, whenever we talk about it in typical Christian uh, usage, We'll use that to refer to our growth in Christ. We are being sanctified, meaning we are becoming more holy, becoming more like God. And that's true. That's good. The use here is a reference to the initial point of sanctification, which is when you, when you were first saved. So when you were first became a Christian, you were sanctified in the sense that your sins were all forgiven. You were cleansed, and that regenerating work of the Spirit sanctified you. So what he's talking about here is not the ongoing work of the Spirit throughout your life. It would include that, but it is the more, the, the more in, the intent of the word is to talk about your conversion. So we have the foreknowledge of God, this, this love that God set upon you from the foundation of the world, and then we have this converting that is done by the Spirit, which he calls sanctification here. And then we have two or four obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So we see uh, Father, Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to see. And Peter's he's being deliberate here in the way that he's using those words deliberate to highlight. So you, so you see the Trinity at work here. But the obedience to Jesus Christ, that is the result of the first two. 
because God loved you, set his affection on you from the foundation of the world, and because the Spirit sanctified you, converting you, making you a Christian, the result of that is this growing, ongoing growth and obedience to Jesus Christ that happened um, because of the sprinkling with his blood, which that's a, that's a reference in Old Testament language referring to um, the atonement that would have happened in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But now it is the blood of Jesus Christ and we're sprinkled by his blood and that's what cleanses us. It can be, a, it, it, it may be odd in, in our minds if, if we're not used to thinking this way, but this is a reference to us being cleansed because of the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Verse 2, this, um, this idea of Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But the concept, the teaching is all throughout the New Testament and it's present in the Old Testament. But it becomes clearer in the New Testament. But it's a fundamental Christian doctrine. So um, let me, there, there are some misconceptions about the Trinity that are very common, especially if you anybody like in youth group or something tried to teach it to you once. There's a lot of uh, misunderstanding of the Trinity. So let me just tell you a few things that the Trinity is not. Trinity does not mean there are three gods. No, that's polytheism. Um, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three different gods. Trinity does not mean that the Father is greater than the Son or the Spirit, to where there's really one head honcho and then there's a couple other guys that tag along. No, that's called subordinationism, and that is not true. That's a heretical view. Um, the Trinity does not mean that each person is one-third of God. That's called partialism, which means Jesus gets to be a third of God and the Spirit gets to be like pieces of a puzzle. And you put all three together and there's God. No, that's, that's a heretical view. That's partialism. You might have heard somebody say, ah, oh, Trinity's like the three-leaf clover. No, truly, uh, that's not, that's partialism. Um, here's another one. Um, the Trinity does not mean God simply appears in three different modes. Um, no, that's modalism, um, which is... You know, you might have heard the illustration of, well, it's kind of like there's water, and then there's ice, and there's steam. It's all H2O, but it appears in different ways. That's not true. That is a heretical view called modalism. So, how do we understand the Trinity? And what I'm going to tell you, it's okay if you don't understand it, because I don't understand it. I acknowledge it, and I believe it, but I don't understand it, because there are some things about God that are higher than us, Right? So there are things that we can acknowledge that the Bible teaches that we say this is true even though it is outside of our capacity to understand. So this is, this is the secret hidden things of God that are glorious and wonderful and beautiful, but we don't have to understand how it works and how it fits together. There's not a formula or a mathematical equation that can make it all make sense. But it is, nevertheless, these are truths that, that we can acknowledge as Christians. So here is what the Trinity does mean. Trinity means this. There is one true God who eternally exists in three co-equal persons. So you have, here's, this is God. God is the Son. God is the Spirit. God is the Father. However, the Father is not the Son the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet, there is only one God. Y'all got that? Make sense? Well, if it does, then congratulations. You're smarter than every other Christian I know. 
But this is, this is something that is, is, we can acknowledge this and say, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. And that's okay because our God is a glorious, powerful, beautiful God that is beyond us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can acknowledge things that are difficult and, and, and kind of mind-blowingly complicated even though um, we don't understand them. That doesn't make them not true. We can acknowledge it and say, God, thank you that you are who you are. I acknowledge who you are. I worship you for who you are even though there are things that I can't understand, and that's good. So, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same as the Old Testament God. The Holy Spirit is, uh, is also God, and is God as is the Father and as is the Son. There is not, there's not this conflicting will within God. So, what, you want to, what, you, what we want to see here, going back, is that all of this stuff, this elect exiles, all the things that God has done for us is done as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together with one heart, one mind, one will, no reluctance, no hesitation, no division, all in on saving us, electing us, accomplishing salvation. It's all a work of the Trinity. Whenever we say God sent Jesus, his son, to die for us, it's not like Jesus was, you know, pouting in his bedroom. Man, do I have to go, Dad? Okay. No, it's like, no, there's, there's no division. Jesus went willingly, gladly, because he has the same will and the same heart as the Father. So this is, what, this is who God is. God is Trinity, and we could spend hours and hours and hours unpacking this, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. That's who God is. Now, we want to look at who, what God has done, what God has done. Now, if you've got a paper Bible and you're looking at the text here, verses 3 through 12 in English might be broken up into a few sentences. But in Greek, it's one long, complicated sentence. Um, Today, we're just going to look at three verses of those 12. We'll spend the next three weeks looking at one sentence. Don't worry, it won't be as boring as it sounds. I'll try to do everything I can to to keep you engaged. But that's it's one sentence. Verses 3 through 5, which is where we're going to look today, those focus on salvation, what God has accomplished in his salvation. And that should give us hope for the future. So verse 3, I'm just going to break these down one at a time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just a little side note. If you're ever looking at a, a text of Scripture and you're like, man, I, I don't, what's going on there? There's a lot there. It helps to break them down into little chunks and pay attention to the prepositions. To, from, in, of, about, because of. Think, look, small little connecting words like that that kind of clue you in, and there's a ton of them here. And Our English translations, the ESV is what I use, they're they're pretty good at maintaining the original sense of the Greek. We have pretty good correlations between Greek and English. So this is, um, what we see here is a good reflection of what is in the original language. So we see in this verse here, we see God's character, his great mercy, right? God's character, he's merciful. This is who he is. And we see God's initiative, he has caused us. So mercy, that's his character. He has caused us, that's his initiative. So this this is what God is doing. And then to be born again is God's action. 
His character, his initiative, his action. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So this is, this is what God has done. And so, so far, what we've seen is Peter's describing God's actions, God's actions toward us and we being the recipients of God's actions, all right? So the word born again, that phrase, born again is something that, it, it's a good metaphor, it's analogous to being born the first time because you didn't choose that. None of us chose to be born, and none of us chose to be born again. It's something that happened to us. And then we, at some point, realized it. Oh, I've been born, or oh, I've been born again. But it's not something that we did. We did not initiate that. Nobody can take credit for being born, and nobody can take credit for being born again. It's God's initiative. And so, um, born again to what? Well, it's to a living hope. So this living hope here, we're born again to a living hope. That's not a dead hope. A dead hope would be um, something that's uncertain, unlikely. It's kind of a wishful thinking, a pipe dream. That's, that's kind of a dead hope. It's like, I don't know, maybe. You know, odds are not, not, odds are not in our favor, but maybe. That's a dead hope. But he calls it here a living hope, which means that it is certain. It is rock solid. It's something you can count on. Through, through the resurrection. Well, that's connected to the living part, the resurrection. So, Your hope is alive because your Lord is alive. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the certainty of the hope that we have because our hope is that because Jesus is alive, because he rose from the dead, all the blessings and promises of God now are are ours. That's the basis of our hope, the resurrection of Jesus, that he died and rose again. And that is the the foundation of all all of the hope of the Christian life. And so just as Jesus is alive and not dead, so also our hope is alive and not dead. But hope for what? What is this hope? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse 4. So going from verse, verse 3. See, I've got verse 3 here, but here verse 4. Um, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So our hope is for this inheritance or to this inheritance. Now, if you just think about how inheritances work. In the ancient world especially, whenever uh, you know, the father dies, the firstborn son would receive the inheritance. And we don't do it necessarily this way in our culture, but in the ancient world, the firstborn son, he got all the inheritance, or at least most of it. And then um, because he was inheriting the um, all the responsibilities of being the, the head of the family. So he received more of the inheritance because he had greater responsibility. But um, the idea of, of inheritance is the son receives the inheritance. And who is the son of the eternal father? It is Jesus Christ. He is the son. So the inheritance is his. It is Jesus's inheritance. But as Christians, we are in Christ, right? If you look up just the phrase, in Christ, it's all over the New Testament, this idea that, that we are in Christ. So that means because you have faith in Jesus, that's, that's, not, that's not merely just an intellectual thing you believe, but being regenerated by the Spirit, being converted, being saved, means that you are now, you're now kind of in Christ. It's like he's the envelope and you're the letter inside it. We are in Christ. So everything that is true of Christ, everything that belongs to Christ, um, well, not everything that is true of Christ, but everything that belongs to Christ is certainly ours. 
So the inheritance that belongs to the Son is by extension, it belongs to those who are in Christ. And so the inheritance that we receive is the inheritance that, that Jesus, that is His. That, uh, and uh, what is that? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But it belongs to us. Now, Peter describes this inheritance with these different words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. What's that all about? These words are meant to, they're, they're kind of um, big superlative type words that uh, represent something, some big idea that is describing the indescribable, essentially. So I've, I've broken it down here so you can visualize it a little bit better. Imperishable. Here's the first word. This is, our inheritance is described by these three words. Imperishable, that's something that never wears out, never runs down, never grows old. So your resurrection body will be imperishable. The same word here is used to describe the body that we will receive in, you know, in eternity. We have a body that's imperishable. It means that it uh, never wears out, never runs down, never grows old. Um, that's your resurrection body. And the word undefiled, the second word, that is something that is utterly pure. It's morally clean. It's, it's blindingly righteous and perfect and good undefiled, and unfading. That's something that is permanent and unchanging. It's something that, that is, it is fixed and certain. It's stable. It holds its value. So I'll, I want you to try to imagine something, because what Peter's doing here is he's using words to paint a picture of something that really does defy an explanation. So picture if you could, like right now, if you were to just, God says, okay, for one minute, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. And you're going to be caught up, and you're going to spend 60 seconds in the full experience, the blissful experience of heaven, of eternity. I'm going to give you one minute to experience that. And then you're caught up, and you experience that for a minute. And there you are for a minute. You're drinking it in. You're taking it in, and this, all, of the, all of the experience, this exhilarating, mind-blowing experience, you're, you're seeing God and the blinding purity of his righteousness, and then you're, you're feeling within yourself what it is like for one moment to not have no insecurities, no doubts, no fears, no problems, no worries, nothing. It's like you are just totally at peace, totally restful, totally satisfied. It fills you up. God is there. And, and then there's this sense of fellowship where there's love and joy and there's, there's perfect happiness that, is, that defies any explanation. And you take that in for one minute, 60 seconds. Then God says, you've got three words to describe it. Where do you start? There, there, it, it's why whenever we see words like, well, there's the pearly gates and the streets of gold. Those, those are words that, that evoke thoughts. They, they, it's imaginative that, that helps us to kind of get this, this idea in our minds of something perfectly valuable and permanent, otherworldly. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's, he's giving us words to paint this picture for us. There's simply no earthly experience that can even come close to what he's describing here. If you spent one minute in eternity in heaven like that, you would never be the same. It would change you. It would have to. It would totally change you. That's your inheritance. And you're not only going to get a minute of it. You're going to, you're going to get an eternity of it, but you're not going to get bored with it. 
because it's going to be something that your capacity to enjoy it will always be increasing. So it's going to be on this, it's like the volume is just going to get louder and louder, and the, the brightness of the dimmer switch is going to get brighter and brighter, but it's never going to be too much because you're always going to just be increasing in your capacity to take it in for, forever. And just, we're going to be transformed from, transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's eternity, and that's your inheritance. So Peter's describing something that is completely foreign to us because it's something unlike anything we've ever known. And yet, the thing he's describing is the thing that you have uniquely been built for. It's like when you get there, it's not like it's going to be like, whoa, this is weird. Uh, it's like, no, it's like you'll be like, ah, finally, the, the thing that my soul was meant to run on is here. That's what you will experience. That's your inheritance. So Peter uses these words to describe something that's impossible to describe. Let's say you're talking to a blind man, and you're trying to describe to him what red looks like. I don't know. How would, how would you do, what words would you use? Because it's not something, a blind, a blind man has no categories for it. I mean, you might, you might try, you might have some attempt, but there's not something, you might try to find something that is as close a parallel and analogy as you can think of, but it's always going to fall short. Because no, the human language cannot capture the, the, the power, the beauty of what this is that Peter's describing. So take the most indescribably thrilling experience you've ever had, multiply it by 10,000, and then you're not even close. That's this. You know, there, there are places on earth that are so just breathtaking in, in its beauty that it literally, it's just like you're, it takes your breath away. I've been, there are, there are two places that came to mind. Uh, one of them is on the border between Argentina and Brazil, and it's called Iguazu. It's a waterfall, but if you've ever seen the Star Wars movies, it's like the planet Naboo. It's just this water falling everywhere from all different kinds of places, and it's just beautiful and pristine, and the trees are so lush and incredible. And you go there, and, and when I was there, I was looking out, and I, and I was in disbelief. I was like, this I'm here, I'm seeing it, but I'm, I'm having a hard time taking in just how powerfully beautiful this is. It's amazing. And so what do you do? You take out your stupid camera, and you take a picture of it, and you're like, this is, I, I'm actually, in my, in my sermon prep, I was like, I'll, I'll show a picture of this thing. And I looked at him, and I'm like, there, there's, I would rather you imagine it than me try to insult you by showing you a picture that just does not do it, not even the panorama. <laughs> okay, this will do it. I'm like, no, it, it, nothing can capture it. Nothing can do it justice. The other one is in Exuma Islands. Down the, uh, I had a friend of mine, a guy who was a member of a church here, who blessed my wife and I incredibly by taking us on a sailing trip for five days. And there was this one place, sandy beaches that we walked on, and it was just like, I walked around, I'm like, this, this can't be real. This can't be real. And I'm just looking around, I'm like, these are things that in, in movies, it's like they, they just, there's no, nothing compares to it. And that's, our, that's what our inheritance is like. And that's, those are kind of the, the peak moments. It's like, and I don't say this flippantly, like those, those things that I got to see with my own eyes, they, they change me. These things that you see, there are moments in your life that, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be the same after this. And that's what your inheritance is like. 
He's describing something otherworldly. And words don't do it justice. But God gave us these words to help awaken our hearts to a glorious reality that exists at this moment. It, it exists right now. It's not like, well, one day you'll get there and God will kind of, you know, wipe off the countertops. All right, guys, here you are. It's like, no, he's preparing it and it's ready. It exists right now. And many people that you know um, that have gone on to be with the Lord, they, they're, they're beginning to experience this now because they're already in the Lord's presence. But, but it, it's something that exists right now and it's created by an endlessly creative God. An endlessly glorious God, and you were made for that experience. Not for this broken, sinful world that is messed up that we experience now. You were made for that world, that reality. And sin messed it up. But that's what you were created for. And you're going to spend the rest of eternity in it if you know Jesus as your Savior. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And since we were made for that world, then what's our experience like in this world? Exile. We don't really belong here. Yeah, we can settle in. Yeah, we can, you know, we, we make the most of it. We try to invest and build and do good things, do good works. But it's exile because where we really belong and what you were created for, what the human soul, the human body was meant for is that experience. And so that's the reality that is kept in heaven for you. God says, it's here. It'll be ready when you get here. It's not going anywhere. And that reality, it's on the far side of an obedient, faithful life now during our exile. And that's our hope, and that's a living hope. So here's the context, and we add verse 5. So this is kept in heaven for you. That's where we're picking up. Who, this is you, you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that's, that's at the end of all things. So Peter, he's referring to his salvation. But whenever we speak of salvation, oftentimes we, we mention um, the salvation here. The way we often use the word salvation is this past thing that you did. I was saved at youth camp or whatever. Or a thing you currently possess. I am saved. Right now, I am saved, but present reality. A lot of times in the Bible, and maybe even the majority of the times, what they're referring to is a future reality that encompasses the previous past and present. So it's a salvation ready to be revealed. So the salvation is, is future-oriented, right? The salvation is ready to be revealed down the road in the future in the last time. But you don't get that one unless you already have it. So it includes the the past and the present, but it's pointed towards the future. And so, this salvation is the final reward. That's the inheritance. The inheritance is whenever you receive it, it's like, ah, oh, this is the, sal- excuse me, the salvation that I was meant for. And you receive it at the end of a faithful life. Now, this salvation, he's telling us something about it. He said, that salvation is being guarded. Guarded through faith. Now, those are, those are key words. 
How is, that, how is the salvation being guarded? What's well, being guarded by God's power. So God's power is what's guarding you. Do you see that? The, the, the inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded. So, so the salvation that you have, God is guarding it. He's protecting it for you. He's making sure that it's solid and it's firm. Because it's secure, it's yours. You own it. It, it is something that is your inheritance. It, it belongs to you because you're in Christ. You're secure there. And it's being guarded, but it, it's being guarded in a particular way. How, how is it being guarded? It's being guarded through faith. Whose faith? Your faith. So, if it's my faith, then how is it being guarded by God's power? And that's, that's the question. It is your faith and your experience of it is this is my belief. I believe this. But you believe it because God caused you to be born again. And he caused you to be born again because you were elect before the foundation of the world according to God's foreknowledge, his love that he set on you before the foundation of the world. And so that belief was brought about because of all the things that God had done prior to. And now that you have faith, he's guarding it by his power. Think of God's power like a, like a soldier with a flaming sword, a standing guard around your faith to make sure that your faith stays secure all the way to the end. That's what he does for us. You are saved by grace through faith, and that faith that does save you is held secure by God's power. So let's, let's recap some of the ideas here. Salvation, is a, it's a work of God. I hope you can see that in the text here. It's a work of God from start to finish. It is done in us, it is done for us, but it is done by Him. He's the acting agent here. So we have God's election, we have the Father's initiative, we have the Holy Spirit's sanctification or re- regeneration, we have Christ's redemption, the, the sprinkling with His blood, and the result of all that is our salvation, our inheritance. Our salvation began with God, who caused us to be born again, and our salvation will be completed by God, who guards our faith and keeps us secure in His power to the end. So it's our part. That, that, that's our part is right here, through faith. It is, and faith is not an act that you do. Faith is a belief that you hold. And by belief, it is, it is, it is I am trusting that this is true. And that's your part. That's, that's not too bad, is it? <laughs> it's, it's a belief. It is, it is, this is something that's like, I, yeah, that's true. I believe that. I want that. I desire that. And through that faith, God does all kinds of beautiful, wonderful things in you, but the things that he does is because his power is at work keeping you there, working out your faith in various ways in your life. I want to read you two scriptures because um, I'll talk about election, the doctrine of election here in just a moment, but I want you to see that this is something that is here in First Peter, but Paul teaches it similar and uses very similar language. So let me just read these verses to you. This is uh, two selections from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's a scary word. Don't freak out. He predestined us 
What did he predestine you for? For adoption to himself as, th- as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Well, according to the purpose of his will. None of your business, in other words. It's the purpose of God's will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's, a, there's another one a few verses later. This is continuing just later on the chapter, verses 11 and 12. In him, that's Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. So there's similar language. Having been predestined, again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All right, so here's the thing. We're almost done. Some people would disagree with this doctrine, and that's okay. Um, we, it, it's, it is controversial because we don't like feeling like we're not in control. We like to feel like, I made my choice. And we like to feel like, we, like we're in control. And that's a thing we're conditioned to in the modern world. We're conditioned to always expect a choice, even in spiritual matters. So it's like, I choose God or I didn't choose God. I choose to believe in Christ, I didn't choose to believe Christ. Now, I would argue that if, if you don't accept this doctrine, then what you're left with is that it is a choice, and then, then you're kind of crediting yourself, that salvation was up to me, and I made the right choice. I made the right choice. I got it right. I figured it out. You know, all these other idiots, they didn't see it, but I saw it, and I believed it. It gives us a grounds of boasting, which is Bible language, a grounds of boasting, which is something that is eliminated um, for those that are saved by grace. Not by works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So we, there's no grounds of boasting. And this doctrine puts it squarely in the idea that we, we really are completely at God's mercy. And, of course, God is gracious and merciful. He's filled with mercy. And according to his great mercy, that's how we're saved. But it, if we don't believe that, then it tends to elevate us as the ones who figured it out. And so... Another person, you know, other people might think, well, if this is true, then doesn't that just make us robots? Aren't we just kind of just, we have no, no real choice in the matter? No, that's not true either, because we make real choices, and the Bible clearly affirms that you make real choices. Now, it's, this is another one of those things where it's a tension, where on the one hand, you make real choices, and you're accountable for real choices, and on the other hand, these choices are ordained by God, the ones that orient you towards God, it's like God produced those choices in you and by his power ensured that you made those choices. So those who receive or who reject Christ, they make a real choice and they're accountable for it and they will be judged by God for doing so. And those who choose to receive Christ, they make a real choice, but it was a choice that was enabled and empowered and ensured by the Holy Spirit. So you have a choice, but It's not as though you have the ultimate choice to make any decision you want. I might choose to fly around Cincinnati like Superman, but I don't have the power to choose that. Same way here, it's like we we to to make a life the choice of life to follow Christ, that's a choice that needs to be brought about in us because we've been made alive by the Spirit, regenerated. Now, you might think that's a contradiction. Okay, um, I'll grant that that, that that can appear to be a contradiction, but it is something that uh, theologians would call this compatible. These, these, deci- these, these doctrines are compatible even though they, they, there's a tension here. 
And it's, it's an uncomfortable tension because it's something that we can't figure out. You can't plug it into your spreadsheet and get the answer on the right cell. It's like these are things that are beyond us. And yet we see this is what, I'm, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty clear that this is what is taught here in the scriptures. So even if, if, if you don't accept the teaching, I mean, it's not something that we, well, you can't come to this church anymore. It's like, no, it's like, we understand this is a difficult teaching. Um, and so if, if people, if, you're, if you don't accept that, I mean, that's fine. I, w- I would just challenge you to derive what you believe about God by what is written in scripture and not from your personal taste. And be honest with yourself enough to say like, you know, like, I see what's here, but I just don't like it. Be honest about that. But if you disagree, do so with an open Bible and a sincere desire to submit to God's word. Final point here. You might think, okay, why, why is this in my Bible then? If it's this difficult teaching, why is this even in my Bible at all? What happens a lot of times is we get hung up on the difficulty of the doctrine and we miss the beauty of it. So when we get hung up, we start questioning God's wisdom. It's like, well, why didn't God choose so-and-so? Huh? And then there's an accusation. Well, you should have. You should choose so-and-so. And I'm mad that you didn't. It doesn't seem fair because we're so conditioned by choice. But this doctrine is not in your Bible to lead you to question God and appoint yourself as judge over his word and over God's wisdom. It's here to build you up in your faith. Don't miss that. Don't miss what God is telling you. God is telling you that he chose you because he loves you. And whether or not God chose this or that person, frankly, that is none of our business. That's above our pay grade. Those are things that don't belong to us. Those are the secret hidden things of God. And it's none of our business. We can be accountable for what God has told us and believe it, which is God, if, you, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, God did choose you. And you're meant to receive that and respond to it. And respond in the way that God intended, which is whom God foreknew, whom God elected before the foundation of the world for the purposes of his own will and his own glory. And that means you are privileged beyond fathoming. You don't deserve it, and neither do I. And you did nothing to bring it about, and neither did I. I could just as easily have been some hard-hearted, wicked, pagan God-hater. And yet, because of God's mercy that I cannot comprehend, and not because of anything good in me, God said, that one is mine. And because God said that one is mine, he brought about through his own infinite wisdom circumstances that where I'd hear the gospel, respond to it, believe it, and then build a life on it. And for everyone in here, hopefully most, if not all of you, that is your story as well. We didn't do it. We didn't choose it. And God put it in here to tell you this is the depth of God's love for you. Don't worry about how God believe, feels about everybody else. Don't, that's not what we're meant to do with this. What we're meant to do this is receive it and be edified by it. I'm like, God sees me. God chose me. And I, and I know all the awful things I've done and awful things I've thought. And you've done awful things. You've thought awful things. And yet, despite all of that, God said, there is a unique way that my glory and mercy will be put on 
a showcase before the watching universe by saving that one. I'm just looking around the room here. Jeremiah, there is a unique thing that God is doing to display His unique glory and mercy because He saved you. There's something God is doing there. We don't have access to that. We can't download that file. But, that's, but God did that. I'm tempted to name a name, bunch of names here, but apply it. <laughs> this is you. This is what God has done. So what can you do? Receive it. Believe it. it. It's humbling. It's humbling. So relax. Enjoy your salvation. God saved you. God sees you. Trust God. Trust his word. Follow Christ wherever he leads you. Enjoy it. And fall down in complete wonder knowing you've got an eternal inheritance waiting for you. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you, our Father and our God, for the beauty and the wonder of what you teach in your word. Lord, I pray, um, we talked about Trinity, we talked about election, predestination kind of stuff today, Lord, and this is, um, it can be uncomfortable. Um, and Lord, I, I pray that you will do through this text and through this sermon what you will in every person's heart here and help us to resist the temptation to put ourselves on the seat of judgment over your word, but rather you'll just help us to receive your word and to wrestle with what it says and to understand and apply it to our lives. And we thank you, God, that the thing that's undeniable for anyone is that you are a great and glorious and merciful God who saves us and has an inheritance for us through faith in Christ. And so we, we give you all praise today and thank you. Pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.